It's been so hot outside. Man, what? I was not ready for the summer. It went straight from cold wintertime to 95 degrees, 100% humidity. And when you feel like that, once you get past the pollen part. (laughs) It's hard for me to get past the pollen part. The immediate feeling is like, it feels just like that Donald Glover song. It sounds like summer. Yeah. And that's like family reunion and (laughs) real hot dogs. That's crispy. I want a burnt one. I love it. Summer is family reunion time. It is. I haven't been to a family reunion in a couple of years. I didn't go to the last one. The one before that, my family came to D.C. And so you've been, everybody that's in my family that listens know you've been calling us country. And so all those country folk <laughs> were in D.C. having a good time. I believe that you all are Southern and not country. I just oh, want to. No, that's because somebody <laughs> corrected you on Instagram. That's because someone corrected you on Instagram. So you said country. I say Southern. Southern. <laughs> what I want to know is this summer, are people going to switch from Frankie Beverly and Maze before I let go to Beyonce before I let go? Are the old people going to let us do it? Okay, so one thing that we know is that old folks love a line dance. Yes. So Especially one with instructions. You don't have to memorize it. (laughs) Exactly. Beyonce tells you exactly what to do. And old people love that. So they got to switch over. I hope my mama is listening. She loves line dancing. She does. And she is one of the young people that love line dancing. time we were line dancing in your uh, your house yes in north carolina yes Ooh, child we were working up a sweat <laughs> and mrs watley was outstepping all of us man you're gonna twist your ankle trying to keep up <laughs> don't do it <laughs> i'm tt and i'm zakia and from spotify studios this is dope labs I think one of my favorite things about family reunions is just seeing how alike everybody is. Right. Like my mom and one of her first cousins, they look just alike. Right. Do you feel like you look like somebody in your family? Everyone tells me that I look just like my father's mom. They're saying that it's like uncanny. Genetics is crazy. Genetics is a weird thing because I'm like, how? When, you know, I have a whole nother side of my family, how do I look just like <laughs> right. Her and not like anybody else. It's really interesting because when everyone's together, you start looking at things and noticing things that you never noticed before. And so I have like a second cousin and people say, oh, y'all look so much alike. And I'm like, that's my, that's a distant, it's a second cousin, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. versus me and my mom or me and my dad, someone mm-hmm. saying that we look just alike. Right. I know me and all my sisters have the same pinky toe. What? Same exact pinky toe. What is it? I don't need. You don't even want to know. It's not. I'm like, what does it look like? It's not cute. But um, aren't those things like so strange? Yeah. And we get it from our mom because our mom has the same pinky toe. And how, how come nobody got your dad pinky toe? Have you even seen your dad's pinky toe? I've seen it. I don't want that. He wears sandals. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like all these things. Like, I feel like the family reunions turn everybody into like a genealogist or a forensic detective. You're like, hey, all of us got this pinky toe. Then somebody else come along, you're like, you don't let have me, that pinky let toe. Let me see your pinky. Are you really in the family? Right. Like, you got them all. If you follow Zaki on Instagram, you see that she has a mole right above her mouth. It's beautiful. It's my reset Where, button. Yes, that is her reset button, her power up button, all the buttons. Anytime Zakia needs anything, she can press that, that mole and she'll get it. Where does the mole come from? It's so distinct. I think I'm the only one with a mole. But I think my mom and her brothers have, like, soft, curly hair. 
Mm. Okay. And then I went natural. <laughs> and I was like, hey, my hair is coarse. It's about a 4C. And I asked my dad. He was My dad's bald now. So conveniently, <laughs> he's like, no, no, no. I have waves. I have waves. <laughs> I never heard my hair is not like that. And I'm like, hey, Playboy, either your hair was like that or you're not my father. <laughs> no, you are not the father. So, yeah, I feel like now you don't have to look and see, does this person belong? Do they look like Aunt Carol? Right. Do they look like Uncle Joe? Yes or no. Right. You don't got to ask those questions. <laughs> because there's, for $99 and sometimes less, you can get a commercial DNA test. Yeah, like Ancestry.com, 23andMe. Yeah. My Heritage, Family Tree DNA, and it, the list just goes on and on and on. Hey, people getting these results back, and I think the family reunions this year are going to be spicy. Y'all eating chicken at corporate, and they're like... Uncle Billy, this <laughs> says I'm not this. Hey, nobody told them they want they want answers. Right. Questions that need answers. <laughs> I don't know how people decide like, yes, I want to do a genetic test. And then beyond the genetic test, the people that put them into those genealogy databases to find more people. Like, I understand the thirst for that information, but mm-hmm. I'm also like, aren't you a little bit nervous about that? I'm nervous about all that stuff, which is why I, I have not done that. Yeah. I feel confident that I know for the most part where I'm from and so I just I'm just sticking with that if it's something different it's just gonna have to be different I'm from North Carolina and I think that's good enough for me <laughs> <laughs> I'm from North Carolina and it's humid and and that's all I need to and know the bugs are the size of your head Whew. that's all you need to know about North Carolina but you know that really brings up a good point like you were saying I don't really know how it works and somebody asked us about that in on our Instagram live yeah somebody asked us a question they said have y'all done like 23andMe or Ancestry testing. Yeah, one of those commercial genetic testings. Yeah, and they're like, have you done a commercial genetic test or a direct-to-consumer genetic test, and what do you think about it? Guess what? We're answering your question today. (laughs) (laughs) So today, we're talking about genetic genetic testing, testing. specifically direct-to-consumer genetic testing and how that information is being used. All right, let's get into the recitation. What do we know and what do we want to know? So there has been a huge boom in the amount of people who are doing these genetic tests. In 2017, almost 4.5 million people did direct-to-consumer genetic testing. And in 2018, that number almost tripled. And by the beginning of this year, more than 26 million people have added their DNA to one of the main ancestry or health databases. Honestly, it's everywhere. Everybody's doing it. I heard somebody was using these tests for dogs. But what do you need to know about your dog? Let's think about my dog, Daisy. Oh, I love Daisy. Daisy is a chihuahua, and she's very chihuahuan. But she's part human, too. Sometimes I do think Daisy's a human. She definitely sleeps under the covers like a human with her head on the pillow. See? And now you are a person that wants to get a DNA kit for your dog. I'm going to get a DNA kit for Daisy. (laughs) (laughs) Folks are using these DNA kits to not only find out their ancestry, but they're also using them to find out if they have any type of diseases in their families and any type of genetic things that they need to be aware of. Right. So looking at risk profile, you know, Mm -hmm. do you have this certain gene? If you do, what does that mean for your risk of manifesting a certain disease later? So when you get your results back, for most people, the buck stops there. They're not doing anything else. Nice to know that I'm 14% Scandinavian. 
But some people take it one step further. Some people are using this information and putting it into some of these open source databases that are separate from the direct-to-consumer companies, but they're using them to kind of make a genealogy tree or find long-lost or distant relatives. So they're looking for other people who have genetic profiles that are similar to theirs. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, when they do that, police are using that information to find the distant relatives of yours that have committed crimes. Like the Golden State Killer. That was a cold case that had been unsolved for decades. Yep. But then the police were able to find a DNA match. That's crazy. But also great that they have a suspect after all these years. You know, so how do we weigh those things? And who, like you said, who's doing the weighing? Do the rules change? Do the, are there any rules right now? We're going to get into that a little later in the show. But first, there's a lot of things I need to know about these kids. I have no idea, like, how a lot of this stuff works. So that's what I want to start the dissection with. I want to start with the very, very basics. So you want to know what genetic information they're looking at in these tests? No. Like, I want to know, like, what is DNA? What is a chromosome? What is a gene? And then, like, how these kits work. How do they get all of that information from a bunch of spit? So from the spitter to the kidder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> My questions are more around kind of information and the disclosure of information. So if you have this genetic information, and not even just information, if you have the sample, what are you doing with all that spit? Do you use it all in the process when you're collecting the DNA? Mm -hmm. Then when you actually get those test results back, does the company keep a copy of it as well? Like, do you get a copy and then they keep a copy? Or you get a copy and they burn it after reading? Mm -hmm. I have questions about that. This message will self-destruct. Right, <laughs> right. Is it like Mission Impossible? But then I think my other question is, even though there are these privacy concerns, and there, you know, for some of these companies, they say we, we do not share information with anybody. Is there any clause that allows that to change? Is it possible that they don't share now, but they will later? Right. Is it in the terms and conditions? Because you know I don't read that stuff. I don't ever Scroll read to the, the bottom, click the button, uh, click, click accept, accept. <laughs> and go about my life. I acknowledge I have read this, but I have not. I have not read a single word. So before we get to the dissection, we want to hear from you. What do you guys think about these at-home DNA kits? Have you done a, a genetic test? No, I did not. I have not. Why? Just not interested. <laughs> I don't trust it. I don't think you can just swab my spit and tell me where my ancestors came from. It just doesn't make sense to me. Have you ever done any genetic testing before? Not that I know of. But may maybe somebody did it on me, but I don't know. I think there's also a little bit of concern I have around data privacy and how data is being stored and shared. So that would definitely be something I would need to look into if I were to, like, try it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've, we've tried that. Yeah. You've yeah. done that? Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, could you tell us a little bit about what motivated you to do this? I'm from Japan, mm -hmm. and in Japan, like, there is a discussion that, you know, how pure Japanese you are. So I was curious about, like, finding out by myself, like, if we, I, I believe I'm not. So, like, you know, I, I, I wanted to find out. So let's get into the dissection. And today, the dissection is going to be a little bit different. Because we're going to tackle the dissection in this lab in two parts. For the first half, we're going to be using my friend and favorite person <laughs> <laughs> as our expert. Because um, Zakia, she is an expert on all things DNA. Your PhD is in genetics. Right. And so I'm going to draw on your expertise to explain a lot of this stuff. No problem. And then in the second part, 
we're going to be talking to a lawyer who specializes in forensic science. And they can talk more about the bigger questions around the information from these kits and how they're used. Right. They're going to help us understand some of the ethical, legal, and social implications of this. All right, Z. So run me through how these commercial kits actually work. So first you send in a bunch of spit with DNA in it, right? I think one of the common misconceptions is that inherently that there's DNA in your spit. What's happening is your cheek cells, your cheeks are constantly shedding, right? Ooh. I know that seems really that's gross. That's nasty. <laughs> a little ASMR. <laughs> your cheeks are constantly shedding. And so those cells that are coming off of the cheek, the inside of the cheek, those have DNA in them. And so what you're doing is getting those cells that are in the spit and you're getting the DNA out of the cheek cells. So let's start with the very basics because this is what I need. Okay. I know DNA. Mm -hmm. I know chromosome. I'm feeling pretty proud. Don't get your hopes up. (laughs) (laughs) And I know gene. But what I don't understand is how those three things interact with each other or Like, what's the difference? Oh, okay. I felt some judgment in that O. (laughs) Well, I think that's a... a, These are great leaps and bounds because you used to only tell me that the mitochondria was the powerhouse powerhouse of of the the cell. Because it is. I remember that from biology. I'm feeling good about what you know so far. Thank you. Thank you. If you know any of those words, I think we're off to a good start. (laughs) Right? So if we think about our cells, everything in your body is made up of a cell. And these cells replicate the way they're able to replicate and the way they're able to function is that they have instructions in them. And those instructions are stored in the form of DNA. But there's so much genetic information. And so in order for it to all fit into a cell, it is really condensed. It's packed and wound on top of itself. And in that formation, that DNA that's wound up and really tightly packed, those are chromosomes. So chromosomes are tightly wound DNA. Yeah, that's it. And so how do these things translate into, like... TT as you present. Yeah. Like, so, this beautiful face. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so each cell has different areas of the DNA that get turned on or turned off. And those areas, those little pieces of DNA that correlate to, like, make more sugar or do this and that, those are genes. So along the chromosome right, which is that tightly wound DNA, there are regions that encode for special functions for each cell. Mm -hmm. And so even though every cell in your body has the same information, they appear differently because different genes are turned on and off. So different parts of that chromosome are being expressed in, let's say, a cell that is in your gut compared to like a cell that's in your eyeball. This is very complex, but the way that you're explaining it makes a lot of sense. So each cell has the same 23 chromosomes in it. And those chromosomes all have different genes on them. But the collective term for all 23 of those chromosomes is a genome. Okay. And so when you hear people mention like, oh, a human genome, um, they're, they're talking about all of the chromosomes that person has. And so when we talk about the human genome, the human genome is just if you are of the species Homo sapiens sapiens, this is your genome. Right. But like bird, a a specific bird, it has a different genome. So you can't. So that's also a thing people have to understand is like each species has its own set genome. So we have a reference genome that's that's come out of a lot of work that scientists have done to understand what's on each chromosome. So all of our 
genomes are the same? Roughly. And I think this is something that people don't really realize. If you are a human, you share roughly 99.98% of your DNA with other everybody else. Wow. There is very little variation. Hmm. We're not so different. Well, I'm feeling really optimistic because that means I share about 99.98% of my DNA with Beyonce. <laughs> and so I think, you know, when we think about these genetic tests, what they're looking at are areas where there tends to be variation. So that 0.2% that's left over, that's the variable part. And in that variable part, that's where you have genes that make you distinct from someone else. And so they're saying, is there somebody else with a similar profile? Mm. Or are there groups of people that have similar profiles? And that's how they say, okay, you have shared ancestry or this percentage of whatever versus, you know, 30% of this. And so that's how they're creating these profiles. Okay, let's take a break. And when we get back, we're bringing in someone who can help us break down why this is so important and what you need to know before doing one of those kits yourself. We're back. And so in the first part of the dissection, Zakia, you really laid out the basics of DNA and how these kits actually work. Right. And so now we're going to talk about how that information is being used. And to help us, we recruited Erin Murphy. I'm Erin Murphy. I'm a professor at NYU School of Law. I'm the author of Inside the Cell, The Dark Side of DNA. And I've written and researched DNA issues for a couple decades now. Erin's work shines a light on how DNA is being used and who is using it. A perfect example of this is in the Golden State Killer case. I read that book and I was not sleeping for weeks, okay? <laughs> I was like, I think I hear something in the house. It, that but you also do that when there is a bug in your house. Yes, uh, equally scary. You guys have to check out the book. It's I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. I'm going to put a link in the show notes and hit us on let's, Twitter. Let's read along. Let's read together. Let's read it together. Like, we'll be like, okay, read up the page, whatever. It'll be like being back in high school again. Yeah, being in a book club. I think it'll be really good. And folks, some folks wasn't reading the book, but I trust that you all will read this book. Yeah. Read the That's book the and let us know what you think. That's the thing about book clubs is when folks show up and they haven't read what they were supposed to read. And then you're like, so then how are we supposed to have a book club? Just eat the snacks. <laughs> Just eat the snacks. <laughs> and these are virtual snacks, so it costs us nothing. <laughs> Okay, so let's get back to this case. So they were ha there was a string of murders and rapes and burglaries in California, and that was in the 70s and 80s, and the police could not figure it out. They did have a DNA sample from one of the crime scenes. So law enforcement took the Golden State Killer's DNA from a crime scene and ran it through their database. But when they tried to find a match in the ordinary criminal justice databases over time, they never found a match. So then you fast forward to 2018, and the use of these direct-to-consumer DNA kits has completely blown up. And there's a growing interest in using these online databases to try and make connections to unsolved cold cases using genetic material. And there's a site in particular called GEDmatch. And if you're trying to do your Googles, that's G-E-D Match. And that's a site where people who participate in online recreational DNA testing, sites like 23andMe or Ancestry, when they do those tests, they usually have to kind of stay within the walls of the service. And so... 
if you send your genetic information to Ancestry.com and you're trying to find relatives and then some relative sends their information to 23andMe, you won't find each other because you're both in separate consumer commercial databases. So uh, a person in Florida kind of invented this idea of a site where you could sort of upload what you got from one of these commercial testers. And the idea would be to allow you to break down those walls so that people could find each other across different commercial platforms. So law enforcement uses a DNA from the Golden State Killer crime scene to create a profile. And they did find a distant relative on GenMatch. So when they got back a match, they thought, well, if this person is in fact related to our perpetrator, they're pretty distantly related. They're like a third cousin or so. So they built an entire family tree from that sample. And that led them to their suspect, a former police officer in California named Joseph James D'Angelo. They got some of D'Angelo's DNA, and we'll talk about how they that could have happened in a little bit. And he ultimately proved to be a match. So let's look at some of the reasons why they found a DNA match after all those years and why they couldn't find a match back in the day. Well, first, it's because there was a wider pool of people on GEDmatch. The law enforcement databases police were using decades ago only had convicted and arrested people in it. GEDmatch is an open source platform where anyone can upload their information. And the second reason is because the genetic information people upload into GEDmatch from their commercial kits is a lot more informative. A lot of people assume all DNA testing is the same, but it's not. Okay, so there are two different types of DNA testing that we're going to talk about today, and they're very different. There are STRs and SMPs, or SNPs. The information you can get from STRs is like what you could get off of somebody, uh, learn about somebody by looking at their driver's license. The information you get from SNPs is what you could learn about somebody by looking at their phone. The law enforcement databases used to try to find the Golden State Killer back in the day those only really had information that was from STR testing. But the commercial genetic kits people are using today, those are SNPs. Yeah, and that analogy Aaron used makes me nervous because I don't want people looking at my phone. It's like that Drake song. You know when Drake first came out and he had that, that freestyle? He's like, if you find my Blackberry with the side scroll, sell that to any rapper that I know. That's basically what it is for me. If you find my phone, you got the keys to the castle. So let's start with STRs. Why did legislators decide to use STR testing for criminal justice databases? One thing to understand is that when forensic DNA typing came on the scene, legislators and criminal justice officials made this very conscious choice to choose parts of the genome that were highly variable, so they, they're different among people, but essentially meaningless. Yeah, they might have had your phone, but it was like a rotary phone. It was just looking at areas of the genome where we know there are these sequences that everyone has, and they just repeat different numbers of time in different people. Also, with STR testing, the range of how far back you can find relatives is limited. It really only allows you to identify parents or full siblings, but you probably wouldn't identify a correlation with, say, aunts and uncles and definitely not second or third cousins. SNP testing, on the other hand, is very different. SNP testing can get you someone's third cousin. It can get you genetic connectedness between people who in our social worlds probably don't know they're related. I sometimes like to point out that the person who was the link to the Golden State Killer probably read the newspaper about that arrest with the same sense of surprise as everybody else because they probably don't know their third cousin. SNPs tell you everything. They're saying this is how many phone, this is how many pictures you have, this is how many selfies you have. This is what you like to look at at night. This is what you like to <laughs> listen to before you go to sleep. Like, it's telling you everything. It's like Spotify. You know how those playlists know your exact mood and what you have for breakfast? That's yep. what a SNP is. SNP testing far more implicates privacy than this other form. 
it's a very, very different kind of testing. And I think it's a really important difference to understand in judging whether this is a method we should use or not. And they have several other applications aside from these kits. SNPs are used in biomedical research and in the pharmaceutical industry. One example of the technology that can be developed using SNP data is CRISPR. And this is a really popular gene editing technology that's been in the news lately. So that means that for these commercial testing kits, which have SNP information from all their consumers, that could be pretty valuable, right? People assume that the model of the business is one that's about commercial kit testing. You know, oh, 23andMe makes its money from my $99 kit. But we know that that's not true. In fact, they discount those kits to subsidize the real model of the business, which is, you know, research, precision medicine, et cetera. What they're doing is selling data, genetic data, and using genetic data for research. That's what makes them money, not your kit. This is something that I always tell people. Sometimes you might think that you're paying for a service, but sometimes you are the product, right? Like people are selling, like people say, oh, I only paid $5. And then I got, you know, my dad was telling me about an app where he could get 15 cent off for gas for forever. And I said, hey, you know why it's so cheap? Because you are the product. Mm -hmm. They're selling your information as a consumer. Just DNA Labs alone is like a $1 billion industry. If you really put it together, all the different applications and research, it's way more than that. And what that tells me is there are people who think this is really valuable stuff, right? You would not have entire industries forming around understanding the genome, understanding what we can learn from it, understanding how to edit it to improve health outcomes, et cetera, if we didn't think those things were possible. Yeah, I think it's exciting to learn more about where you're from and who you are and, and how you're related to this person or that person. But I think there needs to be a little more marketing about the other side of the coin, you know, which is the collection of biomedical information and how it informs different types of decisions and policy and and health care. So I think we have to really consider not just like, what am I getting from this information today, but what else can be done with this information later? Putting your DNA out there is like when you squeeze the toothpaste out of the tube. You can't put that toothpaste back in. Nope, it's not going back. Once it's out there, it's out there. Might as well brush your teeth. And that's just assuming that all you can do is brush your teeth. We don't know what they're going to do with toothpaste in the future. We still don't have a firm grip on what exact role genomics play, but billions of dollars are being spent right now to figure that out. And so I think when when people think about, well, what's the impact of sharing my genetic information, it's really important to remember this is incredibly valuable stuff. People people really want to know what's in the genome and what we can do with it. And the decision I'm making today may not be changeable in 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, when some of the money that's being spent right now actually starts to re- reap div- dividends in the form of much more concrete information about genetic predispositions and so forth. And as we learned with the Golden State Killer case... Access to this information isn't just valuable to commercial genetic testing companies. It's also really valuable to the police who are using these open source databases to solve cold cases, hot hot cases, (laughs) lukewarm cases, all All the cases. I just feel like I just found out that I own lakefront property in the south of France. We're sitting on the gold mine. (laughs) (laughs) We got to protect it. That's right. I feel like now that we kind of have brought everybody up to speed, we're all thinking about how valuable our genetic information is. Let's go back to the criminal justice system and how DNA is being used there. Mm -hmm. I want to know everything. Like, could police have my genetic information? And if they do, when did they get it? How did they get it? 
there are a couple different ways that law enforcement get DNA now, um, both visible and invisible. So the most visible way that they collect DNA is that if a person's been convicted of a crime, in every state there are convicted offender DNA registries. And that means that just as a byproduct of that conviction, you're required to give your DNA to the state. And they put that DNA profile into a database. As for non-criminals, sometimes law enforcement will just ask people for their DNA to help them find a suspected criminal. And some people are happy to help, but a lot of people might feel like they're being coerced. I know I would feel that way. We've also seen in some places prosecutors using DNA samples or DNA profiles as a way to sort of trade leniency in their treatment of cases. So um, they can say, you know, I'll drop this drug possession case if you give me a DNA sample for the database or I'll mark, you know, your charge down if you give me a DNA sample for the database and courts by and large allow that. So those are visible ways. And in all those scenarios, people know that their DNA is being taken, even if they're not happy about it. But there are other ways, too. Right now, there's really no prohibition on what's called surreptitious sampling. And this is the idea that anything you discard that has your genetic or biological material on it can be seized by law enforcement and tight. So basically, you don't even need to commit a crime for police to snag your DNA. And they aren't required to report how many samples they have. So they might have mine and they might have yours. We don't know. And it's especially complicated because we leave a trail of DNA around us everywhere we go. You touch a doorknob, you're leaving fingerprints behind. You didn't exfoliate. You didn't wash your legs. <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're shedding leg skin cells as you walk. <laughs> there you go. Your DNA is right there. They're coming for, right behind right, you. Right for the picking. And I think that's one of the concerns, again, about this genetic genealogy is that it strongly incentivizes this kind of surreptitious collecting. Because as you're building out these family trees, if you come to a stumbling block, one solution might be just to test, even if you know this is not the actual suspect of the perpetrator, one way to overcome that stumbling block might be just to collect surreptitious samples from the kind of last person you had to try to get closer to your actual perpetrator. So when you pair an open source database with the ability to surreptitiously or secretly collect DNA samples, suddenly police have way more avenues to find potential criminals. That could have been how they got the DNA sample for the Golden State Killer suspect. Maybe they followed him into a Jamba Juice or picked up a used cup. A straw. A, a, a used straw or mm -hmm. something like that. And now he's in jail. And because commercial genetic testing and these open source genealogy databases have become so popular so quickly, the courts are kind of racing to catch up. There aren't a lot of protections currently in place. A good precedent, though, is smartphones. So just to give one example, there was a big Supreme Court case about searching cell phones. And we used to have this general idea that if police like arrest you or lawfully seize you, they can kind of seize your stuff. They can look, they can pat, pat you down. And it was largely motivated by like our safety rationale. You know, if you're going to seize someone, you might want to make sure they don't have a weapon in their bag or what have you. And so the Supreme Court in that case said, no, you know, they have to have uh, a reason to search your cell phone and permission from a court to do it. And that was a point that came up in the Jesse Smollett case. Like people were saying, why doesn't he turn over his phone and show police, you know, who he's who he was communicating with? But there's a lot of stuff in the phone. We didn't really have a law for that. Like we have to develop these laws as we learn more about these technologies. And that kind of, I think, understanding of the differences that technology can make and the ways in which privacy can be much more compromised now because of that technology than in the past, is what we need for DNA. We just haven't had it yet. A sort of reckoning with the biological cell, not just the mobile cell. <laughs> 
And while there are some regulations in place for how police can use their own law enforcement databases, there are little to no regulations in place for how information from the open source databases can be used. These commercial companies in general have some, you know, protections for privacy, et cetera, and how they're going to use the data in place. But it's very voluntary. And it's 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 really not that binding to the extent that it might conceivably be binding. You can't really imagine much by way of enforcement of those agreements. People are always shocked when I tell them, like, no, I haven't done one of these tests. But it's because of the scary factor, right, of, of the unknown of what's going to happen in the future. But if there were laws in place to protect your genetic information, it might be different because it is interesting. Right. People should feel free to go out and get these tests done to learn more about themselves and, you know, their ancestry. They shouldn't be worried about their DNA being used in ways that they aren't aware of. Or haven't approved of. I don't think you should have to choose between those really legitimate reasons to want to do this and genetic transparency for the rest of your life. You know, I think you should be able to participate in this kind of, you know, recreational genetics without not just bartering away your genetic privacy, but the genetic privacy of your children, their children, all your, you know, relatives that you know, and all the relatives you don't know. You need to tell your your auntie that's out here telling everybody to do a, a DNA kit, say, you know, I love you, but here are some things we should be thinking about. Right. Did you read the fine print before you send in all that spit? I think it's important for people to start to, to start knowing I, I because I can really see there being a, a turning tide where we're going from T-shirts that have the family names on them to DNA kits with the family <laughs> name on them as your party favor for the family reunion. Let's just think it through before we do that. So that was a lot of information to take in. Not just a lot of information, a lot of scary information. <laughs> and, and, the, and the point is not to scare, right, but to raise awareness. I think that's what we really want to do. Yeah. Do you feel like you understand now how all these things go together? I definitely understand a lot more. And I feel more informed. Like if somebody were to say, oh, do you want to do this ancestry test? That I would be like, okay, well, let me read a lot more about whatever company it is Mm -hmm. who who I'm planning on submitting uh, saliva to. I think it's important. I think one of the major takeaways is that not all companies are created equal. And those terms and conditions do vary. So I guess we got to start looking at that. Yeah. Um, And then even after you get your results, what you do next really can have a major impact, right? Not just on you, but everybody else in your family. And you have to you have to think that way because it's, it's way bigger than you. Just like when you get your results back and you realize, oh, I have all of this family from all these different places. It is bigger than you. And you should like really hone in on that fact that this is affecting way more than just your yourself. I just been thinking about the collection of DNA and how you get added to a database. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we just briefly mentioned, you mm-hmm. know, law enforcement might ask people for their DNA to get them off. Like, you don't get this so that in exchange for a lower, a lighter sentence for something. It could be something that you didn't even do. So if I've really been thinking about this episode in the context of When They See Us, which mm. just came out. Yes. And I just think about those boys in that room mm. And being alone, being nervous, being scared. If they say, we want to swab, you want to get your DNA, you're going to probably say, yeah. Right. Because you think if you say no, then it's like, does that mean that they're going to think that I'm trying to hide something, that right. I'm guilty or right. something that I didn't do? And that's just, it's just not the case. And I, I'm sure that there are going to be some people who are thinking, well, don't we want to catch like people who commit crimes? Like, we should all be giving up our DNA for that. But 
just because there's a DNA match does not mean that you are automatically guilty. Aaron and- told us a story about a man who was in an ambulance. Yep. And uh, later on in that day, another person was in that ambulance, a victim of a crime. Right. And they swabbed that victim for uh, DNA. Mm-hmm. And the man who was previously in that ambulance, his DNA was on that person. Yeah. And I so think they, it was- they arrested him. Yep. And, and so I think there's that component of it that there's the... On the one hand, we know that when there's always when there's a DNA match, it doesn't mean that someone is the perpetrator of a crime. But on the other hand, is that the collection of DNA for the purposes of figuring out or excluding people from crimes doesn't mean that's the only use of that information. Exactly. And I think that's the terrible part. It right? doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. It's not like, okay, this I'm here to help you with this one case and the buck stops here. Mm-hmm. No, now I can take your DNA and I can do a familial search when there's something else that happens. And I don't think that people are aware of how this one small action ripples through for them forever, right? And And not just affects them, but affects the people that they know and love and even distant relatives who they might not know or love. (laughs) Right. And then their children and And your children, children's children. So people you can't even make a decision about depending on where you are in life. People who don't even exist right now. Yeah. Wow. That's really real. Mm hmm. For more on today's episode, check out our cheat sheet and show notes at dopelabspodcast.com. And remember, the phone lines are always open. You can leave us a question or a comment or text us. Our number is 202-567-7028. That's 202-567-7028. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Dope Labs Podcast. TT is on Twitter and Instagram at DR underscore T-S-H-O. And you can find Zakia on Twitter and Instagram at Z said so. And if you do love the show, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or wherever else you listen to your podcast. Special thanks to Erin Murphy, our guest for today's episode. You can learn more about her work and find a link to her book in our show notes. Our producer is Jenny Rattlet Mast, mixing and sound design by Hannes Brown. Original theme music by Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Sugiura. Additional music by Elijah LX Harvey. Shout out to Hope Jackson, our new intern. We are so excited to have you a part of the Dope Labs crew. That's right. Welcome aboard. <laughs> Dope Labs is brought to you by 3M and is a production of Spotify Studios and Mega Own Media Group. And it's executive produced by us, Titi Shadia and Zakia Watley. So basically all the chromosomes in our cells are just mix and matches of pieces of DNA that we get from our parents. So it's like, I have my mother's smile, but my father's teeth. <laughs> I think that's quite an oversimplification, (laughs) but (laughs) for illustrative purposes, I will allow it.